0: So today we have with us a man I've been really, really looking forward to uh, speaking to. This guy is a great, among other things, a, a fantastic marketing guy because I see him all over the place. He is just, I am envious because marketing and advertising is my background, but I don't hold a candle to this guy. Um, he's just come out of nowhere. He's brilliant doing that. Comes out of a very valuable background, um, out of financial services. Uh, background in in the last few years has really kind of uh gotten a tremendous amount of traction quickly in real estate. He is the chief executive officer at Cornell Capital Holdings. He is Dana Cornell. Dana, welcome to Street Smart Success.
1: Roger, thanks so much. Generous introduction. I appreciate you being here. Appreciate yeah, you having
0: me. I'm glad to be here too, man. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> You know, as a young man, uh, you know, I did some sketchy things. Man, I'm lucky to be here. But anyway, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> so, so there you are in Western New York, some of the um, coldest weather on on the planet uh, that I know of, certainly in the states. Do you hail from there originally? Uh, have you been there your whole life? What is the uh, Dana Cornell background?
1: Yeah. So I I am from here originally. I typically say Buffalo area. That means about an hour south of Buffalo because no one knows where only in New York is unless you're a native of St. Bonaventure University, which is here. Um But yeah, I grew up here, man. It's a town of about 14,000 people. My father was an excavation contractor, still is. My mother was a school teacher. She taught kindergarten here for a long time. I literally started my career here Knocking on doors in that winter weather that you mentioned with long johns on under my suit and, uh you know, spiky hair when I was a young, young buck running around, didn't know any better. Um But that's that I think groomed me to kind of put me on a path of where I've gone since then. So um I enjoy being here. You know, I don't stay here all year round anymore, but this Got is it. all.
0: I, I've not heard the term. I'm from Cleveland, so that's why I'm kind of teasing okay. you a little bit about being there We're yeah. on the other side of the lake, yeah. uh, and also some of the most the coldest weather. Uh, I haven't heard the term Long Johns probably since I was a kid. So I just it's that's funny. I, I bet I bet I'm in California now. I, I bet most yeah. people that are from here, or from, from like yeah. or grew up in like Texas, Florida, whatever, have never heard the term Long Johns.
1: You don't even know what well, they yeah, are. Sure, there's some good uh, Google images to describe what they were back then. Now it's all Under Armour and all that stuff. But no, I mean Long Johns. Look them up. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: that's good. Yeah, man, that's why I love doing podcasts for a million different reasons. But stuff like this, man, just, that, that just that brings me back. And and I've got that image of you going door to door. And so, hey, man, I I am not worthy. Uh, that that just takes. Uh, major guts and and, and grit. Um, when you say the term wealth management, right? What does that mean? And is it pertain to what you did? And I'm assuming you're talking about your days at Morgan Stanley, maybe uh, I think you were at Edward Jones, et cetera. What does wealth management mean? Like what did you really do and how did you make money?
1: Yeah, so, you know, we could talk about that question alone for a long time. Um, you know, the traditional uh, definition, at least in my world was you know, I connect with a the family, they need help in essentially all aspects, but especially investing their money to reach certain goals at certain points in their life, certain periods of time, um, whether that be retirement income, and freeing your time up or buying your time back, as I kind of reverse engineered that process and started talking about that, uh, sending your kids to college, whatever it may be, estate planning. So I'm a certified financial planner by, by practice, certified investment management analyst. So I kind of worked with, you know, you work your way up in that world, worked with bigger and bigger families as far as net worth went. That's really kind of where, you know, I came to a crossing point where I'd reached a, a high level of success relatively speaking at Morgan Stanley, you know, we had the executive director title under 40, the Forbes recognition, all that stuff is great and I appreciate it, but was really left You know, with a void of, I think comes from the small town, you know, mentality, but that business is built on how much in assets can you acquire and charge a fee on in a lot of cases. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of very good, uh, very effective wealth managers or financial planners. Um, But in that model in the corporate setting just didn't work for me. I felt like I was trained to be all things to all people. It was more of a factory than me going deep and really making an impact for for the clients that I wanted to. Okay. And when you say a factory,
0: um, does that mean, well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I I infer certain things, but I'm just going to ask it more open-ended. What does that mean the way you mean it?
1: Yeah, you know, and of course, most people there would not maybe agree with that. But the reality is we weren't trained on the name of that game is a business model is assets under management, right? So you're giving up a lot of your compensation to the firm, which they kind of position that as they're giving you a lot of resources to build your business bigger, go deeper with clients, so on and so forth. The reality is, at least in my, my corner of the world, I knew and my clients knew I couldn't be their, the best financial planner for them and be their best insurance advisor. I could not be their best private banker. I couldn't be their best, you name it, right? Where the firm wants you to be all of those things to all of those people. So that's really where I started to kind of disconnect from the model and take a step back and and really deeply look at, you know, where was I adding value? Where were my clients asking for help? You know, and how can I meld those two models just to go, you know, maybe not as wide, but much deeper. So that's kind of what led me through my transition to walk away from all of that and 1.4 billion under management, which they asked me if I needed mental health counseling when I told them I was leaving, which is still probably out for opinion. But- uh, I-, I was thinking yeah. the same thing. I was yeah, thinking you must yeah, have making it. some money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was very comfortable in a very small town. Financially, I was very comfortable. My family was taken care of. But I've always been that guy where I question everything. And if I don't feel like I'm doing the the right thing or the best thing, I got to figure out a different way. So that's how Cornell Capital was essentially born.
0: Did you get one point yourself or, or how was the split done?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we charge, you know, it's a fee based on assets. So people can do the math on, you know, $1.4 Average fee was 1%. The total book of business maybe was a little bit lower than that for larger accounts. Um, there was a lot of revenue there, you know, and we took home maybe half of that.
0: Got it. Give or take. I say
1: we, meaning you and your. Who's the, we? the. Yeah, the actual team of mine on the ground, myself. I took half of that. The firm took essentially half.
0: Got right? it. I understand. Of, of a point. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Well, you know, it's funny because one of the things I was going to ask you is why did you leave? So you, you've you uh, uh, alleviated the necessity for me to do that because you already answered it. Well, you know what? Hey, man, my, my hat's off to you because it takes a heck of a lot of courage to walk away from something like that, uh, especially after the, you know, arduous journey of building it up. I mean, there's no shortcuts in anything. So the fact you do that, not to mention, you know, taking the risk of reinventing uh, it's kind mm-hmm. of speak speaks to your character. Good for you. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, you got it, man. Well, I guess my question is, why real estate?
1: Yeah, yeah. so when, you know, I started real estate, but really, it's really quite honestly, when I when I looked at Morgan Stanley and when I came into the business, everybody had their white haired stock and bond guy, right? So. I was always looking at how can I be different? How can I add more value? How can I just tell a different story than the guy that looks just like me but has 30 years experience on me? So I gravitated towards alternative investments. So meaning not just private real estate, but that was certainly a key component, but private equity, private debt, things like that. When I was kind of analyzing, like I'd mentioned, where am I adding value? Who are my most successful clients? whether whether the wealth was waiting with me or or not, right? And the bottom line is you can make a pretty strong case that the majority of true wealth in this country has been derived from ownership of either private real estate or private small business. Those were also the best investments I had for clients at Morgan Stanley. The difference was there were three or four layers of fees in there before they hit my desk to then go to the client which I then had to tack another fee on top of that. So I had started investing in private real estate syndications myself, saw the advantage of direct ownership or being closer to the actual asset itself and just started crunching some math and figured you know, when I'm looking at someone's financial plan, which was the majority of what I did there and realized I can give them the same income or more tax efficiently with about a third of their assets using private investments, which takes all the pressure off everything else. And then you look at the traditional way of doing it where you invest it all and they're gonna pay you, you. know, I used to run an average rate of return over an assumption, assumption of time at 5.5% and pay you four as a client. That's, there's no consistency there. There's no predictability. There's risk in everything, of course. But the difference in the amount of income I can give people first, and let them buy their time back, to me, made all the difference. And it was resonating with clients. So then I just needed the right avenue to be able to deliver that as efficiently as possible. Wow. I got. Fantastic
0: story. So just in the past month, out of curiosity, I've asked a handful of people, nothing elaborate and just a handful of people that I really respect and that I've encountered in the last year or so. What percentage of their portfolio is alternative investments versus public, you know, sure. p- public? And I, one guy who I have a lot of respect for is 100% in alternatives. Another guy I have a lot of respect for is about 60%. Do you have a viewpoint on on what that number should be? Like, like when you when, when you hear me say I know a guy that's 100% in alts, do you
1: think they're crazy yeah. or you know what? What's your view? So great question. Um, I study this a lot. Right from my past experience, from my current people coming into my my network, from my marketing efforts, um, I personally am almost 100% in private investments. I mean, 90% plus. It's a it's a risk. We go down a whole rabbit hole of what is risk and what is what it's not. Right, what has been taught to people to be, which is misleading. Um, I can tell you this. So the wealthiest clients I had had at least, at least half their money in private investments. I've polled my three, now 3000 accredited investors or higher that have come into my network to see our projects and kind of hear my thoughts and that type of thing. The average in that entire universe is about 40% of private investments. Your typical investment firm will say, if you're over a $20 million net worth, you should have a third there. I would argue higher than that. You know, and really, what we do is back into replacing your income, you know how much do we need to replace your income and buy your time back? Then we can make a decision on the rest. The pressure is off the full boat, right? Your total asset
0: portfolio. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P and l. That's why I'm recommending assured partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the 6th largest insurance property broker in the US. If you want a roll your sleeves up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467 5909, you'll be glad you did. What drives the thought that it should be if you have 20 million or more that it should be a third and no more? I'm not saying they're saying oh, it's hard and fast, no more, but what, what no, drives it's just that? No, it's just a
1: typical kind of financial planning recommendation. It's, just, it's a, an assumption of liquidity needs and risk overall. And, and there's different risks in everything, right? People think bonds are are not risky by a very general term, they just have different risks of their own versus an illiquid private real estate or private equity investment. Well, I would argue, you know, how risky was it when the markets go down 15, 20%? And if you're in a private investment, you're still collecting your income, it's still business as usual, you know, your life's not disrupted, right? So it's how do people perceive risk? To answer your question directly, that's how they derive that from modern portfolio theory and asset allocation, the kind of traditional investment thesis. Is how they come up with the third.
0: So I'm not a sophisticated guy, and so therefore I view the the world very simplistically. And this is a thought I've had recently in trying to kind of because I'm 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 doubling down on alternative stuff because just sure. bluntly I need the uh, cat you know I need the cash yeah. flow. And so I'm going to kind of tell you how I see things, but it's really a, more a question than a statement. So it's, it's okay. a statement, but it's a question. I look at it like this: so an apartment building, a mobile home park, whatever the heck it is, it could be a company rolling up dental practices yeah. that you have a an you know, opportunity to invest in. They're mm-hmm. all companies, you know. A, a triplex is a company run by a principal, and sure. so Apple. Is Now, granted, you have a lot more people in management or, you know, Amazon or whatever the heck it is. But at the end of the day, those are probably, Amazon's probably not the greatest example because they seem to be bulletproof. To me, it's kind of like it boils down to just complete macro picture and then then an operator. And so, to me, is there necessarily more risk in an apartment building in a great growing market with high incomes and employment moving in run by the right person, is there more risk in that than investing in any public company, even though there's more liquidity so uh, that's my question
1: so <laughs> this is a this is essentially one of the main um, points of my entire thesis for investing in general, so I'm glad you kind of teed that one up there for me so. It's, it's how do people view risk, right? So I would argue li- liquidity is a false sense of security, right? Everybody preaches a buy and hold strategy, but you have daily liquidity that doesn't really add up at the end of the day. All it does is afford you the opportunity to let emotion creep into investing, which I think most have seen the studies. You can Google it, but you can see where the market, meaning the S&P 500, has averaged Seven plus percent it's a little bit higher now from the last run. maybe it's back down after the tur- downturn. But the average investor has only made between three and four percent due to emotional decisions. So if I can alleviate my clients from that, give them some liquidity, right? We're not locking in for 10 years plus. but you know, take that, that part of the equation out, and then, to the other side of your point, invest in something that you can understand how it works. You can go see it, feel it, touch it if you want. You can follow the math of it to understand how you're getting paid. Not that everything goes according to plan by any means. But I think there's a big price of peace of mind of people being educated and understanding what they own and why they own it that gets forgotten. Or maybe it's purposely left out of a traditional wealth management plan. Because when people are in the dark, just in my experience, they don't ask a lot of questions. They don't want to seem uneducated or you know, um, intimidated by that. So that's kind of how my old world used to work. This is very hard and complex. And don't worry, we're smart. We figured it out. Here's all you need to know. And here's your historical backward-looking returns. When the market goes down, hey, just hang on. It's going to be okay. You know?
0: I've heard this listening to other people's podcasts And I'm curious to get your take, is that I've heard that one of the reasons that alternatives, that more people aren't investing more in alternatives and why people aren't, you know, investing in alternatives to begin with and more of their, you know, of their uh, assets into alternatives is because the financial planning community, if you will, or the, the, yeah, I'll just call it that, the financial planning community doesn't get paid to make those recommendations. Is there a kernel of truth to that, or
1: It could be. I you know, I think it's more, and again, at least from my past experience, from the world I came from, I think it's much easier, keep in mind from an from an advisor financial planner, there's there's essentially you have to run your own business, so you have to bring in new business essentially. You have to take care of what you've got. And then you have to put the time in to know and understand and appropriately handle people's finances. There's three main pillars to that business. Most people gravitate towards one or two of those pillars. They can't do all of those different things, right? Like you said in the beginning, a lot of it is sales and marketing, right? Understanding your audience, what they really want, probably even better than they can explain it to you if you ask them, right? I think that's something that I've learned starting from knocking on doors and just having as many conversations as I've had. I just think alternatives are more complex and there's more moving parts. And you're told initially that those are riskier investments from an advisor standpoint. So if I'm an advisor and my capacity is about maxed out, I don't have the time to understand that, nor do I want to. I'm going to take the easy path and give you a model portfolio of packaged mutual funds and maybe stocks and bonds and just roll with it. So. I say it's just as much. And then, that. Um, I I will transition,
0: but you've been so generous, you know, giving me some really great answers, which I appreciate because I do want to get to do what you're doing now. But I'm finding this to be fascinating, no. and, and also fascinating that you know so much of what you're invested in is alternatives. Is your, what's your rationale for being weighted at ninety percent? Is it cash flow and taxes, or you know what you're thinking on that?
1: It's all the above, right? So. It's cash flow, it's tax efficiency of that, it's total appreciation, and it's simplicity of, again, knowing what I own and why I own it, right? When I can understand it, I don't have to worry about when the next crash is coming or what comes out in the news to make shaky hands hit the sell button that affects me, that has nothing to do with me, that type of thing. It becomes much more of an emphasis on, to your point earlier, who's the developer or who's the manager, um, that type of thing. But that's kind of how this firm was built. I realized there's kind of a gap between people that have access to direct alternatives um, or understand the value of that. It's very hard for them to do the proper due diligence, if they even do have access, to figure out where they should be placing their funds and how they should place them. So I really just kind of molded my old world with this new world. Um, so we just build portfolios of alternative investments. Right. That may be one project and maybe a full portfolio or anything in between, starting with replacing your income and buying your time back first. That's kind of how we work and and build out from there. If you
0: had to guess, what do you think the um, alternative landscape will be in terms of where, where people are invested in, let's say, five to 10 years from now?
1: Yeah, good question. I think it's becoming much more popular by the day. I think. You know, and again, no one knows. I have no idea what's going to happen in publicly traded markets or private investments, quite honestly. Um, But if you follow the trends, you know, I don't think anyone would argue we will have some headwinds in both stocks and bonds, which people, in my opinion, really aren't paying enough attention to and probably should. But when you're looking for income and consistency of that, you're going to be forced to look at other options, which is why so many people gravitate towards our messaging. So, I would only expect the adoption of alternative investments to to increase over the next five to ten without a doubt. I would agree.
0: okay, thanks so much, and i, I appreciate it. Um, so tell me, I guess, uh, what you intended to do when you hung your shingle uh, yeah. and what are you doing and how is it evolving, et cetera. And again, my hat's off to you, man. you're I see you everywhere.
1: I appreciate it, man. yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's the model was was to me. Again, I've always been the guy that questions everything, which sometimes is good, sometimes um, is frustrating and challenging for me and people in my area. But I think that's that's just how I'm built, right? And when I have a responsibility, especially a fiduciary responsibility to clients, that's what I need to do. So when really when COVID hit and I'm at home working and I've got two little boys looking at me you know, looking at me to see, you know, what kind of character and judgment is dad going to make to leave a legacy for them? That's when I had to pull the plug. And I knew if I came out and took all of the good from Morgan Stanley and the traditional model and combined that with everything I wished I had had as an advisor there to really help clients, but also put myself in a position where I could say what I really wanted to say, which is what you see on that marketing, and then get it out to a mass audience, which social media certainly helped that, people would gravitate. The right people would gravitate back. And that's happened. So it's a long way of answering your question. But we started just coming out being essentially we're a guide to best-in-class alternative investments in all major categories. But most people, either one, don't have access to those especially in a way that we offer it, right? Direct investment, much lower fees. Um, two, don't have the time or the interest to do the amount of proper due diligence on something that isn't publicly recorded or traded and reported on. So we, I position myself as the guide in between the client to act on their behalf, to find the right investments with the right managers or developers for that. And really fill the gaps in their portfolios or their financial profiles that publicly traded investments couldn't do. So are you, are you, you're placing your clients' money then
0: with different alternative asset opportunities? Then is that how it works? Yeah. And then how many, how many different entities, I guess, are you placing your clients' capital with? So
1: we always have a minimum of three to five offerings that are kind of diverse, and that's grown over time. You know, I started just self storage because I believed in that model, and it allowed me just to kind of gain some momentum. From there, we've built out. So now, you know, just to kind of paint that picture, we we do everything from right now. I have a co investment with Blackstone, the largest PE firm in the world, to good for you an individual, you know, self storage project you know, that you're a direct owner. Think of 10 of us went in and bought a self-storage company together with the developer. We cover a pretty wide range. That's why I can really customize what you're doing, what your risk tolerance is, um, what your income needs to be, what your tax efficiency needs to be. So it's much more tailored and niche-focused than kind of the shotgun approach that we used to have to use at Morgan Stanley. With, with Blackstone,
0: did you do you need to commit a certain amount of money to co-invest with them? And then you have to feel confident that you could raise that amount of money from your client base?
1: So I'm glad you brought that up. So interesting. One thing that followed me as a benefit from my old world, I had relationships with companies like First Trust Portfolios, which many don't know. Many know them as an exchange-traded fund company, but they do have a private asset platform that not everyone accesses. So that's my connection to the Blackstone, the co-invest through their relationship. They've offered that to me from the amount of business we've done together through the years. So an advantage to the clients internally gets flown past through me, but no fees, not the minimum that you would need the $10 million initial investment if you got access, All right? You can come to us with a reasonable amount. And we can place you in that fund through those relationships I've developed over the last 20 years. So it's based
0: on that relationship. So there's an understanding. Is there not then a specified minimum between, you know, so let's say it's 10 million on your own. It's not like, hey, Dana, it's a million. It's just based on the relationship and trust that you'll bring people to the party.
1: Yeah. So essentially, a company like First Trust will have so much access to that. So they'll have an allotment of it. Because of their relationship with Blackstone, they inherently pass that on to me. I see, um, which' is a huge benefit, right? So you can come to me for as little as 250,000 and gain access to something that your neighbor might have to take 10 million to just even get in the door with lower fees.: I see. Well. And then did they have
0: different funds that you would invest in, real estate funds, you know, private equity funds, you know of private businesses? How does all that work?
1: Yeah. So in the case of the Blackstone, right? You're kind of in for whatever they're doing, but that's one of their private equity funds. We have a menu of multiple real estate broken down by sub asset class, private equity by sub asset class. You know, one thing I'm super excited about now, everybody knows the baby boomer transition and everybody knows, you know, someone or themselves that has a business that makes their widget really well and has done it for 30, 40, 50 years maybe they're not up on the, the hottest sales and marketing, or maybe they need some systems or operations to grow it, right to sell to a true private equity. I've, I've partnered with a group that buys the mom and pop very successful businesses and either does roll up strategies like you mentioned, or just kind of one-offs for businesses. They know they can grow in a short period of time. But the unique thing is they're already cash flowing, already proven stabilized businesses. They can just put some fuel on the fire, so to speak ramp up the revenue and sell it to a true private equity for solid income numbers, extremely efficient tax situation, and total returns off the charts, you know? So unique things like that, that kind of fit in the middle of what people are used to, um, kind of gives us an advantage. And so when you said, I guess you said three or four different, and I forget how
0: you, basically offerings, um, Mm -hmm. was that what you started with or
1: is that what you have now, I forget? In the beginning, I just started private real estate and primarily self-storage. That was just one thing I could just get my, you know, get my bearings again, roll up, ramp up into, you know, what this new world was going to look like for me. I mean, this started my transition was walking away from a billion four at Morgan Stanley with a full staff and the support of a corporation behind me to my chief marketing officer. And I he's generating the leads that I can create in my head. He makes it real. I'm sitting at my kitchen table taking phone calls from potential investors to now, you know, a staff of eight highly efficient um, people on my team and all of these partnerships that I've been able to to rekindle and bring in over the last few years to offer the multiple offerings that, you know, when you come to us now, it's very much more a consultative approach versus back then I just had self-storage, right? So... I'm going to ask you a very direct
0: question and if, you don't have to answer it. I'm just If you're comfortable, that's sure. fine. I'm just curious. I think you said you got a pool of like 3,000 people in your world. Uh, how many yeah. active investors do you have? And again, you don't have to answer it if it's over the top. Yeah, so
1: there's about 3,000 in there total. And they've come in over the last, uh, let's call it a year and a half now. I'm an open book, by the way, so you can fire anything at me you want. So that's 3,000 investors, active that's, investors. That's 3,000 investors that have come in, not... not putting money with us yet, but placing okay. you know they want to see what we have, want to hear my thought content, that type of thing right? get on the list um we have about a hundred and ten very active investors and then some that just kind of sporadically do one project here or there with us so and, and when did you hang the shingle? March of two thousand twenty yeah, good for you
0: that's for absolutely me. fantastic. And you probably know from your experience in Morgan Stanley that it's not linear. It's more, it's going to be a hockey stick with your ability, with your awareness out there. And you know that you might not feel it every second, but I mean, I can tell just by looking at you and talking to you that that'll hit a thousand probably before you know it. Good for you, man. I mean, cause you know, you provide an incredible value and your background as well is fantastic because it's such a broad knowledge base as opposed to, Let's just say you were a multifamily guy or whatever in a very narrow world, not to pick on that. Well, that is fantastic. One thing I is on your uh profile is that you're an advisor with B V Capital. And I was just wondering like, how did that relationship come to be? And, you know, what do you do for those guys?
1: Yeah, again. So so B V is a they're a broker dealer, but they're primarily a real estate shop. So Time to time, they'll have different projects, different unique offerings that come out that um, we'll joint venture on, and I bring capital to their projects. Great group of guys, very, very knowledgeable, lots of industry experience. So it's that type of, of person that I like to partner with, you know, that brings their own track record, their own experience on the other side of me being on the investor side on their behalf, right? So that's been a good partnership there.
0: Yeah, I'm in an investor, I'm in a investor group and their offerings are on that platform.
1: And it's mm-hmm. a highly
0: credible investment platform. So I, I you know, I, I, I get that that's a quality organization. How did you even meet those guys?
1: Man, that's a good question. You know, it's all relationships as, as anything. Um, I had actually met a gentleman that had done some business with them and he was calling me for some marketing advice. And really, kind of got to know my model and suggested an introduction to them. So that's how that happened. So, I see. Totally random, you know. It's,
0: it's the cliche that ninety percent of success is showing up. Yeah, is is hey, sure. it's a cliche, but it's that's been my experience. You know, I mean, absolutely, most people don't show up, so it makes it easier for guys like you and me. So I guess in the last, it does. I'm not even gonna put a time frame on because. But just in terms of what's going on today, this is you know September 2022. What uh, what's your view on asset classes? You think that are going to be you know kind of stars over the next uh, let's call it twelve to thirty six months, and uh, yeah. what it what it all looks like?
1: Yeah, you know, interesting time, right? Publicly traded investments are shaky at best, have people kind of nervous. I would say rightfully so. You know, inflation is an issue. Should have been dealt with, in my opinion, when they printed the money, not after the fact, especially when an election's coming up. So that's a bit manipulated um, and probably will be towards the end of the year. But rising rates affect real estate in general. Uh, I do still have strong feelings on triple net lease properties. I like hospitality still coming back from the lows of the COVID era. Uh, Self-storage, you can still make a case that are strong there from a real estate side. You're going to see a lot more from us on the private equity, that lower middle market company that I kind of described. Um, Very good, old, profitable businesses that can be scaled or combined to make a much bigger, more profitable entity. That just makes sense right now. And with the demographic changes of baby boomers trying to transition out, it's just a lot of opportunity and it's not as much of a tap market as you know, um, the general real estate markets, you know, multifamily is a little bit over overheated right now, um, which has been a big asset class for us in the past. So, you know, they still rotate through just like, you know, sectors in the S&P 500. It's just a matter of where's the value and it still comes down to who's the manager, right? Or the developer. So, you know, I have... Oh, no. i'm
0: interrupting i have a complete aside which is absolutely apropos of nothing but <laughs> on this platform that i'm on one of the other companies that that is available for small fish like myself is is kkr sure. and you know i think they've got a quarter trillion under under oh, yeah. um management and um so i could invest in their um their private equity fund and and i've kind of just thought to myself it 50,000 feet. I'm somebody that's bought, I bought a business that the net result is me losing a ton of money and and just um, business is so volatile. It is so volatile. And so to go out and and buy, which is why Warren Buffett suggests that the average guy like me, maybe not you because you come from the industry, but Warren Buffett suggests that the average person has no business even buying individual stocks. I tend to agree with that because what do I really know? You know what you know he says more people spend time on how the, what their you know the appliance they're gonna buy than the stock. that would not apply to me because I you know I' spend two seconds on the appliance but, but nonetheless the point is well made. So you know I'm thinking to buy, to pick companies private companies to invest in is is riskier than I'll get out but nonetheless um, I went to KKR's website for the division that is raising this money and again this is apropos of nothing but like I am telling you, Every person to, uh, a man or woman in that, on that website went to NYU, Harvard, uh, you know, Chicago Booth School of Business. I mean, the pedigree was just like off the charts so that for a guy, a simpleton like me, it's like, I'm actually comfortable investing with in these people because they are <laughs> smart, smart, smart people. Maybe they're not, but maybe I'm a fool for the pedigree, but that that's a digression at best
1: no, but it's a I think it's a pertinent point because I knew again, just kind of summarize my model right, and I get this question a lot, well, why don't you just buy the properties yourself or the business yourself well, i know I know where I'm good at, I know where I'm not the a player, right, so I will go partner with people like that to buy businesses, you know, I'm on the other side because. I have more experience dealing with an individual investor and really kind of getting in their head, figuring out what they do need, even if they can't articulate it as well as they could or want to. Um, so I know where my skill set is, and I know where it's not. but if you can partner and build a team like that of eight players, you know the advantage goes to the investor. so I get it, man.. Good point. yeah. What do you like about triple net, just the predictability? Predictability, long- term leases with solid tenants. Run escalations built in to so inflationary times just makes sense, um, just a stable asset class yeah i uh, i I'm comfortable with
0: triple net. i you know it's it just has to be obviously the right asset and and, and yeah. again, it requires expertise to you know make sure the leases that are the releases are you know sound and you know et cetera, et cetera. It's all asset management acquisitions. Well, listen. This has been, from my vantage point, a fantastic conversation with you. I love what you're doing, and and I'm in your camp. Um, how how does one get a hold of you, Dana?
1: Yeah. So uh, email is Dana D A N A at Cornell Capital Holdings Holdings with an S dot com. That's the same website Cornell Capital dot com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram just at Dana Cornell. I'm around. Like you say, my marketing's out there, so it's not hard to find me. You can type my name in and I'll come up somewhere. Yeah. Meanwhile, you do have
0: another thing going for you, which you you had nothing to do with. You were just born into it. And you've got a great last name. It just immediate credibility as opposed to, uh, you know, Dana Kent State or, um, you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My uh, funny story about that, my... So there's an advisor with with the same name as the founder of Cornell University out in Ithaca, New York, who does uh-huh. quite well. Um, my grandma tells the story of my aunt applying and gets the letter back, and it says, "Congratulations, we recognize you as part of the family tree, but you're too far removed to get any money." So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I guess I'll take
0: that. You it would be a lot harder for you to get clients if, if your last name were if it were Dana <laughs> University of Phoenix. That makes sense, man. Thank God. Something went. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, man. I, I, I very much appreciate it. And you're a guy I hope to do another podcast with in a year to see how you're doing. I'll probably see you at a conference at some point.
1: Absolutely. Roger, right. thanks for having me, man. This was great. Looking forward yeah. to the next one. Talk
0: to you soon. Thanks.